0: So the last, uh, last short while, last three days of our retreat we've had the opportunity to cultivate this calming and gathering and focusing and mindfulness practice. Uh, It's not, um, in some ways, the task has been simple, but not particularly easy, not necessarily that easy, although although the uh, encouragement to just be with how it is, to be with the breath and the body is simple enough. But uh, as many of us have discovered, being with uh, the moods of the heart, the changing states of mind can be very challenging. So I've been really appreciating uh, everyone's efforts to stay with the retreat Especially uh, for those, for, for us, all of us probably, that, that have found that it's been challenging. Not quite how one would have thought it should go. It never quite goes how one thinks it should go. So having to let go of what should be and aligning ourselves again and again to working with how it is takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of courage. I've also been appreciating the support that we have here from the really wonderful community connected with IMS it's in the background, just going in and out of uh, connecting with the community in, the, in, in the, the back rooms there, the engine rooms, to keep it all fired up and going. It's really a lovely feeling, a lot of sense of devotion, uh, service, very beautiful energy that helps to support and maintain our retreat here. So I've been appreciating that. Um, And the the collective uh, stillness, even though we might not feel that still internally, there's a collective stillness here, a sort of group samadhi that's been cultivated over the last few days. So this practice of, of gathering is really one of the primary foundations of what the Buddha calls samadhi, growing into a, an unshakable heart, a gathered heart, a heart that ultimately, a mind that ultimately can taste its own peaceful nature, can know its own peaceful nature. However, just to uh, focus on cultivation of concentration, of uh, samadhi, is not really enough to liberate the heart from suffering, from stress, from confusion. There has to be some kind of wise contemplative understanding and discernment and inquiry to complement the practice of mindfulness and attentiveness. There to be some way of being able to reflect on our experience, illuminate our experience with this faculty of, of wisdom. So one aspect of our cultivation is steadying and then the other aspect is to wisely reflect discern what is actually happening. One of the, the um, reflections that our teacher Ajahn Chah uh, had about uh, Westerners when he first came to the West, he was, uh, spent most of his life practicing in uh, Thailand, all of his life, was a monk when he was 13 and very devoted, and then took to becoming a forest monk. Wandered the forests of Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia before there were so many fixed boundaries, and while well, there were still thick forests, many, much of which is gone now. He lived a very focused, meditative, renunciant, ascetic lifestyle for many, many years. And towards the end of his life, he was invited back to the village where he had come from. And the local villagers offered him uh, the the, the bu- local burial ground, the charnel ground, which everyone was afraid to go to because of the spirit. So they offered to Chen Cha to begin his monastery, which became the, the sort of mother monastery of uh, what later became over 100 monasteries under his guidance in Thailand and then eventually in the west, the first Western monastery being in the UK, uh, which was started in 1978-1979, which is where I first um, came into contact with the Forest School. Actually, I first came into contact in 77 when Ajahn Chah first came to the UK and to here, to IMS. Um, When he first came, he mostly practiced with Thais and Began to start to have some Western disciples that had perhaps come from Vietnam that were on R and R in Bangkok or whatever and found their way drifting into the forest monasteries and became disciples. And then, so he was he was quite used to some degree, but when he first came here, he was actually quite impressed by the dedication and the interest in meditation, which was not so strong in the lay community. People spend hours on retreats, and then, but eventually, he, he made the comment that he uh, he thought that Westerners uh, we used meditation retreats a bit like a uh, using a lawyer to spring us out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he said that you know we would we get into trouble and go on retreat and so sort of get sprung out. So, but not really understanding what gets us into trouble in the first place. You know, it's important for us to to understand how do we get ourselves into suffering in the first place. So that we 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 don't (laughs) we we don't sort of stagger into the next retreat. (laughs) pull the plug out for a while, take a few deep breaths and calm down and then sort of roll out and the next thing we get kind of all tangled up again. So without any wisdom or wise reflection or wise discernment, we we don't really have a a practice that integrates. If our practice is just dependent on calm and trying to uh, maintain some kind of controlled environment to keep us undisturbed uh, and calm and still, then it's, 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 it's lovely in a way, but it's also very limited because we also then have to struggle to try and repress and keep away some of the difficult internal states that can come up to bother us. So the calm and the, the samadhi is a, is a really important part of the development of the path activity and something we can continue through a whole lifetime to cultivate to be able to return to, uh, to here and now in, in a way that helps cultivate an inner abiding of well-being that's not dependent so much on whether things are pleasing or unpleasing, but we know how to steady and calm and rest mind, calm the mind, using this first foundation of mindfulness. But there has to also be a willingness to reflect, to discern, to allow ourselves to be disturbed so we can gain insight and wisdom, so we can begin to inquire what actually disturbs. Is it the case that what we experience is really disturbing, or is it, of course it is often, but is there a way that we can actually, through wisdom and understanding, adjust our relationship to our experience. In a way, we can't really ultimately control the mind to make it what we want it to be, as if we've noticed. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like the weather. You know, We might start off in a calm, sunny day, but by the end of the day, we could have one of those hailstorms that Kirisara was telling you about at, uh, at the questions this afternoon, we had at our hermitage on New Year's Eve, this last New Year's Eve, the howl storm that we started our nice peaceful retreat. Mind you, things are never that peaceful actually in where we are, in South Africa. It's always a, some dilemma every day. The weather's not peaceful, it's a very uh, turbulent. Dramatic weather patterns, one of the highest incidents of thunder, lightning in the world where we are in the summer, big storms, rainstorms. Started our peaceful retreats with some overseas visitors. And the first night we had this really massive thunderstorm, and they were going, Wow, an African storm. Little did they know. Two nights on, on New Year's Eve, we were just uh, people were just gone to to rest after lunch and suddenly we heard this roar this kind of you know it's a bit like a train going through the sky with a gathering storm and the next thing these this huge hailstorm some of the hailstones like like tennis balls and we just had some solar panels installed which uh i was standing by the window, you hear this you know it's just like it's the noise is these tin roofs are very intense and I'm just looking at these solar panels going and this i have to let go so seventeen broken windows, two solar panels broken all the some of the tiles on the roof broken later. I see these, our overseas visitors sort of crawl out of their huts. <laughs> it's like, so welcome to Africa, <laughs> getting our brooms sweeping up. So sometimes the mind is like that, you know, we start with a sunny day and the morning was sunny, it was beautiful, you know, and then by the evening we've had some massive hailstorm and, and it becomes very personal to us, doesn't it? We, we, we take it very, very personally. You know, what's wrong with me that I'm experiencing this house storm? So in a way, on the most subtle level, the problem really isn't the storms of the mind. The problem is this tendency, as the Buddha diagnosed, to go out and the mind, the heart, the jitta, not really knowing its true unbounded, peaceful, timeless, rooted, unshakable nature, formless nature, because we don't really recognize there's a tendency to go out and identify, a mind to identify with the shifting, changing circumstances, conditionings, appearances of what appears within the mind. Tendency to take that to be a sense of me, of who I am. And then we struggle. There's a struggle. So in this practice of steadying it begins to allow enough strength of mindfulness to begin to able to reflect and to discern what is actually happening here, what is actually appearing to obstruct our ability to be rooted in this fundamental peaceful nature here and now. As the Buddha said here and now there's always this there's always, within every circumstance, every situation, every moment, there's already freedom, there's already peace, already timelessness. We don't notice, we don't recognize. But as we've noticed, as we start to gather the mind, as the, the mind re- settles and uh, um, becomes more calm, does it as it settles on the experience of the body, the breath, as some more strength of gatheredness and awareness, it begins to illuminate. We can illuminate that which obstructs our ability to be peaceful, to know peace. We begin to illuminate that which is not peaceful, that which is turbulent, moving, confusing. So it's important to get to know what moves through the heart, particularly when it is tinged with the experience of struggle and suffering. So The, the Buddha gave a very helpful teaching for, for us to be able to recognize particular streams of energy which are very common for all of us. Sometimes we take what our experiences are so personal no one can understand what I'm experiencing. It feels very, very unique and personal. And in some ways, yes, that's true. But if we boiled it all down, we would find very similar, common experiences, energy. So, one way that the uh, Buddha helped to, us to recognize so we can illuminate what's going on is through pointing to what is called the five great hindrances <laughs> that which hinders that which obstructs the fundamental brightness and clarity of the heart and which tangles us up and confuses us and, and leads the mind to ever keep running out in, in a state of reactivity looking for peace out there looking for some stability some certainty in, in what is always changing and moving and uncertain. So as we start to have some focus, as we start to, mind starts to gather, as there's some mindfulness, we can begin to actually recognize these hindrances as they arise. The first one being what's called tanha, which means the thirst, the thirsting for some kind of Experience of the senses. It's connected with desire. It's connected with this agitation within the mind that's seeking, that's looking, that's that's trying to find some completion in 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 our thinking or in our sensory experience or in our memories or in the next thing. It's not. It gets a little limited in a retreat center where that energy can go. You know, in, the, in our regular life, it goes all over the place. <laughs> we don't see it because we're busy being driven by that energy of, of, of desire, as it looks to find an object to absorb into a new something, you know, another place, another situation, and shift the channels. It keeps us always on the surface. Keeps us agitated. Here, you know, we can read the notice board. There's people glued to the ten times, you know, but there's only so much you can, uh, so much juice you can get out of doing that before it gets pretty f- jaded. Or the, the marmite, or oh, you don't have marmite here, for, it's very tragic for Americans, you don't have marmite, but you can read the uh, the the condiment bottles of what's in them, what's in the food, you know, and that that's about it, really. You know, there's not a lot to absorb into. So we really get to meet this energy very strongly on a meditation retreat. Uh, it's like uh, another way that the Buddha made an analogy, this tanha, this, this desire. It's a bit like a fever. You know, it's, uh, it keeps us agitated. It's sort of an irritation almost. It's, it's not peaceful. It's very unpeaceful. So when we identify, when we think that's what we are, we literally become what we desire. We, we start to become shaped by that energy, the sense of self, the sense of who we are is shaped by that. And there's a constriction, a contraction. So when there's ignorance operating the mind, not seeing clearly, no wise reflection, then we're compelled really to always look for the next thing. If you notice that the energy of desire is never points to itself, it's always pointing to the next thing, the next retreat. We can sit here, you, we've already made it to the retreat and we're already planning our next retreat. You know, it, can, they, you know, it can parade as very, very sort of um, worthy things as well. I mean, in fact, those are often the most difficult because they're, because some desires are so worthy and should be followed can be followed. And there's nothing inherently bad in that, but, but at a more subtle level, it, 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 if we don't really have some conscious relationship to that energy, if we don't know how to illuminate it to reflect on that energy, then we're just uh, driven and compelled by it. We don't really know peace. Buddha was very clear that actually one has to know the end of desire to really know peace. He doesn't mean to say we have to end all desires and kill all desires, but we have to know how to not identify the moments of letting it be, letting it go. And we can, we can know that if there is enough samadhi and gatheredness and wise reflection to illuminate that energy to know, yes, this is this is the energy of of some kind of aspect of the mind moving out to the next thing, and then moments of just letting that be, not following that, letting that go, we start to return to the deeper peace here and now. We can taste peace. The whole world runs on desire, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> just keeps everything going. Recently, um, a few weeks ago, just before we left South Africa, I had some kind of violent sickness. for a 24-hour uh, gastric virus. And what was so interesting, it was horrible, actually. It was really, really a workout. But what was so interesting... <laughs> Because I had no energy to desire anything. I couldn't care less about any. I mean, I have all, the, all these problems to work out, all these stressful things to get seen to before we left. And then all this worry about what was to come, things like IMS, <laughs> to, 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 to do the retreat. But, it, but, you know, during this sickness, I, I just didn't have any energy. I couldn't be bothered. And it was really, really peaceful. It was interesting, very peaceful. And I started to think there was this Zen, there's this Zen teaching about acting, you should act like a dead man. You know, I always thought it was a bit morbid and a bit sort of, you know, not the sort of thing you could teach on a Buddhist retreat, you know. But but actually, there's a certain truth in it, you know, uh, to some degree. That uh, you know to actually to to contemplate it is about in a, in a, when we start to let go of desire it can feel like a death. It's like who am I now if I'm not bound up with that energy becoming someone? I don't know who I am anymore. It can feel like a, you know, we can we can feel displaced. We so it's this is not you know it's, it's not saying this to, it's not a value judgment on this energy, it's just simply the reflective, the wise, contemplative insight, investigation, inquiry is about really illuminating this energy so we can contemplate it and get to understand and see its nature and with mindfulness there's some choice. You know, with no mindfulness, there's no choice. We just get swept along. Mindfulness allows for some discernment. Do we follow this or not? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. In the meditation, we're looking, we're investigating more subtly. What is it like to not follow? To withstand the force and the pressure a desire so that as one of our Chinese master, Mastewa, one of our teachers would say, rather than being turned by the state, we watch the state turn. So rather than being shaped and moved by whatever is arising in the mind and then becoming that and then struggling, we withstand the samadhi, the inquiry, the wise reflection is able to withstand the state, the powerful impingement upon the mind and the heart and the body, and then we watch it pass, it passes, it changes, and the world's still there, and we're still there, and we're still breathing, and guess what, everything's okay. So then if that's not enough, the the second great stream of obstruction or hindrance or difficulty is the direct opposite, when we're not... Well, it's kind of related, actually, but it appears as what's called aversion or ill will or resistance. We don't really... it Actually, they work, they work very closely together. We don't really want what's here. We want something over there. We don't want the pain in the knee and the unpleasant feelings. We want to be peaceful. So right there, there's aversion and desire operating. So often our consciousness is so much tinged with this uh, sense of aversion. I didn't even know I had aversion. I was so averse. <laughs> it was just me, you know, for years and years. I was like, I was graduate, so, oh, yes, that's aversion. You know, it's just me. You know, just this sense of resistance. Oh, the aversion often was directed towards the self. Sometimes it's directed outwardly, but I had a lot that was also directed and undermining my own sense of well being. Mm. So, this is quite, this is, it's very, it's the moments when we can see, illuminate that kind of energy, it's just resistance. We're not fully committed to being here, there's something that holds back, it's going to be very subtle. Or it can be more. It can be very fierce, just plain hatred. Really separating out and not wanting contact. Or it can be irritation, negativity. And in and of itself, you know, as, uh, as Ajahn Chah would say, these, you know, these are dharmas. They're nature. They're things that we contemplate. They're not. It's not bad or good in a way, you know, of course it's not great, but, you know, on some level it just is what it is. It's The the problem is that when there's ignorance in the mind, we don't actually understand what's happening and then we're under the sway of that energy. And of course it's even more problematic when we start acting out of that energy, creates a lot of distress and suffering and complexity and violence within the world. There's not a personal failing if we experience aversion, it's actually common for all of us. It's not something wrong or bad about us, but it's just when it arises, we have an opportunity, as Ajahn Chah says. If there's no desire and aversion, there's no practice, there's nothing to practice, <laughs> there's no path. Actually, you know, eventually these. these, these uh, These energies, these uh, hindrances become, another way he would talk about them is our sharpening stones. They become our teachers, they become that which we uh, are challenged by. We're challenged to meet, you know, these uh, energy with, you know, first of all to illuminate, to know, yes, there's a version here. How is it? How do we feel it? And this, again, this inquiry, where is it, this, this brilliance of the Buddha to take us back to the body, where is it in the body? The same with the other, uh, the other uh, hindrances of uh, dullness. You know, can, we can experience a meditation of just feeling really sleepy and dull But it can also be a a deeper sense of just becoming unconscious. We're not really fully conscious. We're not fully awake. In this awakening process, little by little, we're awakening. And there's a huge resistance to that. If something just wants to go dull and not really be here, not really have the responsibility maybe of being fully incarnated, we want to check out somehow. So when we practice and when we sit, there's all these residues of ways that we go unconscious. We sort of zone out, disassociate, go dull, go sleepy, and so it's you know we we start to meet these states. As we meet them, we're beginning to awaken out of them. We're beginning to change the relationship to them. We're not just being shaped by them, but we can contemplate. We can maybe challenge the edge of it. We can apply a little bit more inquiry. What's happening here? There's choice with mindfulness. We don't have to just be shaped by that. We can inquire. Oh, that's so interesting! Look at that. Or, or the opposite restlessness when the mind is fretting, worrying, anxious, restless. It's also very, very common for so for, for many of us. you worrying about this, worrying about that. What's going to happen? Worrying about our loved ones, the world. Lots and lots of things to worry about. <laughs> uh, you know, it can feel very noble to worry. You know, very, it's like you're not being responsible if you're not worrying about everything and everyone, as if the world needs us to worry about it. You know, I mean, wise discernment, careful discernment, is one thing, but this chronic worry and restlessness and agitation is is something that robs us of our innate well-being. So all of these these hindrances, we can begin to reflect on and realize we can consciously start to work with them, recognizing that they, as they appear, they give us an opportunity. To, to meet them with uh, that which begins to know desire, aversion, dullness, restlessness, isn't averse or dull, restless. There's, some, there's another dimension, this dimension of awareness, that which can know, that isn't shaped and reactive that can reflect, wisely reflect and contemplate and understand and see into the nature of these different uh, visitors that come, To guests that come. In the... Um, teaching from uh, Sharangama Sutra a so Mahayana Sutra it talks about uh, learning to see to discern between the host and the guest that which remains and that which visits this is an analogy for the, the the heart the mind when we recognize its, its true immovable peaceful ever present natures like the host Always here, present. And then these guests come to visit. And when we're, it's a bit like if one in the Sutta it goes on to say, it's a bit like if you're the innkeeper, and a guest comes to check in. The guest comes and you, you say, well, that's you know, nice to see you. Your room's over there, but you don't necessarily follow each guest up to the room and. Get into bed with them. <laughs> you just point the way. You know, there it is. And in the same way, you know, in our practice, we're being the host. This is the, this. We're putting ourselves. Uh, as one of our monastic teachers would say, we're putting ourselves in the position of the Buddha, the Buddha the awareness, being the host, being present for the guests. The, the all sorts of weird and wonderful guests. We don't have to beat every guest up because we don't like them or you know get hijacked by every guest we can just say yes you know weird and wonderful guest <laughs> Avers- aversion and desire and dullness and restlessness come to visit coloring the mind when we don't really aren't really aware and, and have that mindfulness and that discernment then the mind gets colored Buddha said it's a bit like a a bowl of water. You know, when there's desire, it's like a color that just completely colors the whole mind. Or if there's aversion, it's a bit like the water's bubbling and away, we can't really see our reflection clearly. Or if there's dullness, it's a bit like it's got a lot of sediment and mud in it we can't see clearly. Or restlessness, is a bit like a wind that's constantly blowing across the water churning up the mind we can't see clearly we lose touch with the original brightness the original peace here and now that's just how it is we do lose touch but we can always in every moment Chansa, every moment of practice of remembering that it's okay to be with how it is already we're back with the path we're wisely reflecting investigating steadying this last great hindrance to uh, to become aware of just so that when we're practicing we're aware of these guests, we get to know them we get to know the territory we're not interpreting them as something wrong with me, but we're realizing this is just like being in that game park where you go when we were taking our, our friends and our guests around our local Unfulose Park. It's the, the, most, the most ancient, uh, the oldest, the original game park of, in Africa in the 1800s was a um, conservation area it's uh, the old uh, Zulu hunting ground of King Shaka. It's very ancient, very, very lovely. And uh, one can um, be taken out uh, on walks. It's a little bit edgy. You're walking in the territory of rhinos and lions and giraffes and buffaloes. And, and before you go out, you get these different instructions. If you see a rhino run up a tree... If you see a lion, don't move, (laughs) you know, yeah, sure, you know. (laughs) You know, if you see an elephant that starts charging you, pray. You can't go up a tree and, you know, you can't move quick enough. So anyway, you're very alert. You know, talk about mindfulness and presence. There's nothing else happening but each footstep and very aware. The pore of the skin is very awake. But it's a bit like that. In a way, that's the kind of uh, awakeness that we can also have within our practice. You know, there's there's a rhino. Like, oh, look, there's a version. Or there's desire. There's an, a lion. Or, you know, it's like, rather than seeing these things as bad, it's just like, isn't that interesting as an energy formation, as a shape? What is this? What is underneath this energy? Is there any wisdom? Is there anything in the energy? That, that is informing me of anything. And so really being interested to inquire. Desires are in some deep ways our wish to really connect, really to fill off our oneness. Just gets misdirected and aversion is really our, our need for maybe appropriate boundaries. We've been overwhelmed and we need to know how to say no sometimes in a clear way. So restlessness, as it starts to transform and purify, begins to to really sharpen our attentiveness. And dullness becomes clarity. And then this last great hindrance of of doubt of, of is that which sabotages us. It's not the doubt of inquiry, but it's the doubt that that keeps sabotaging and undermining us and putting ourselves down, or, or, or you know, we start to uh, to to sit and practice, and the mind will go, well, I'm not really sure about this practice. You know, I'm not sure about being with the breath. Maybe I should go and do. I know, Hindu mantras, or maybe I should... Maybe should I be with the crown chakra or the base chakra? You know, should I go to the heart center? Or should I do prayer? Or maybe I I should go and do Sufi poetry or something? You know, I'm not sure about this Buddhist stuff. So we can sit there the whole session and try and figure out what we should do. Or we can just say, this is doubt. <laughs> you know, see so the doubt really is... Is, you know, in some ways it can be very useful energy, but when it's just chronic and undermining, it takes away our ability to really ground ourselves and really find a refuge beyond the thinking mind. Because doubt's very connected with thinking, trying to think our way to an answer. think, 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 <laughs> if I think enough, I'll get to that, know what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> you know. Being able to have moments of knowing this is just doubt is very liberating because when we don't know and we're caught in that energy, there is no end to it. It just keeps us going. If I get the right answer, that would be it. But if you re- realize there's never a right answer, you know, it's always shifting and changing. You know, even if the Buddha came and said, this is the right answer and you should be doing this, we go, yeah, no, that's great. And finally, the master's told me. And then a few minutes later, I think, was that really the Buddha? <laughs> was, that, <laughs> was that really the right answer? I remember once, you know, I had such a desire to have a master tell me the right answer. It went on for years. And... Um, I never really, I mean, I found lots of great teachers, but I never really found the one that would, you know. (laughs) And I remember once, Kitty Sara and I found ourselves, we went to uh, India and uh, found ourselves in an ashram in South India with this marvelous guru, all sorts of miraculous powers and wondrous, very dynamic, and I had so many doubts and and he just took one look at me. I finally managed to have a darshan. He had to wait forever and queue up and this whole thing, you know, go with coconuts and you know, offerings. And I finally got in front of the goo, and he just looked at me and went, Don't worry. Just <laughs> like, oh. You know, just stop it, you know. And he just went, OK. <laughs> got the answer. <laughs> There's this being, getting thought in perspective. This is really about this last hint, very profound. Because what starts to happen is once we do that, we start to shift our center of being. It's not so centered on our thinking process or cognitive process. We're not looking there for our deeper wisdom anymore or for the deeper wisdom of life. We know that any view is partial. Any perspective is not going to be a full picture. That thought can only do that. So doubt, when we really follow doubt and begin to know doubt as just doubt, it will actually lead us to our deeper wisdom because it will mean that we'll have to trust. We have to learn and look and explore where to place our trust, uh, beyond the shifting sands of the mind. So, getting to know, we have an opportunity in our retreat to get to begin to know some of these shapes and forms uh, of the hindrances. And all the you know, these are five main streams, but there's lots of you know, tributaries, the energies connected that we can, you know, just to have that, to know this is part of the territory that we can begin to recognize, uh, reflect on, contemplate, not feel that there's something going wrong if one of these appear, and to begin to, as with all of these hindrances, to take our awareness, our embodied practice, to, to, to reflect where... Does this appear within the body? How do we feel desire and aversion? Can we take mindfulness right there to take our awareness and to rest awareness and mindfulness right at the place of where agitation emerges, where worry is, where aversion and resistance appears? Not trying to fix it or push it away or overcome it quickly, but just taking the patience to rest on mindfulness there, to contemplate, to inquire, to discern. So Ajahn Chah would say, all of this uh, difficult practice, this challenging practice, it might not seem like much. We sit here in our moments, developing moments of mindfulness, moments of being with the breath. It might not seem like sort of a great light show of enlightenment. (laughs) Another boring breath, (laughs) whatever. He said it's like, (laughs) he said this practice is preparation. It's preparation, you know, it's to learn to withstand the impact of some of these energies that can really take us out. He said, when there are moments in life when the passions can really hit and, and threaten to really undermine or overwhelm or drive us, as human beings, our, as our consciousness, we are very susceptible, as we've seen in our history, to be able to do all manner of really destructive and unconscious and ignorant behaviors. You know, all of us are capable. If we have no strength, if we have no mindfulness, we lose sanity, we lose perspective, we lose wisdom. So this practice is, little by little, is helping us to withstand and to meet the various forms of these hindrances as they arise, so we can contemplate them and transform them, learn from them, gather strength in relationship to them, increase our wisdom and our skill. Ajahn Chah was if the hindrances come, come, uh, come low, then jump. If they come high, duck. <laughs> you know one has to learn a lot of skills sometimes to work with these with these uh, how to sometimes say not now because it's too overwhelming and to keep gathering some strength of mind how to sometimes welcome and be patient how to discern and how to keep investigating and there will be times when the mind will be free when we'll notice there is no there is no hindrance Buddha said, when the hindrances dissolve, when they finally, when we finally start to be able to overcome and not be, they may even arise, but we're not, we're no longer identified, we're no longer carried along by them. He said, it's a bit like you've been in debt, but you're freed from debt. Or it's, it's a bit like you've been sick, but you become well. Or it's a bit like you've been in servitude and you've become free. Or it's a bit like you've been on a really long and weary journey and and you finally find your destination. Or it's a bit like you've been in prison. When we're under the sway of the hindrances, that's what it's like. But when we have moments of seeing them clearly, reflecting on them and knowing this isn't This is something we can contemplate, it's part of nature, it's not what our ultimate identity is. Then, right there, there's freedom, right there, there's well being. taking uh, courage with our practice. We have this opportunity in this uh, wonderful environment of IMS, this incredible support that's here, uh, this sangha together, knowing that we share this, uh, these challenges together, uh, taking the opportunity to really use this time well so that we can uh, continue to cultivate this gatheredness, this samadhi, this inner um, well-being, these moments of mindfulness in order to be able to reflect wisely, to liberate the heart from its false assumptions in order to taste and to know directly that the heart is already peaceful, it's already free, it's already timeless, already immovable, here and now.